One by one, they fall in line. The news on Tuesday that Mitt Romney will not oppose consideration of a new Supreme Court nominee in the closing weeks of the election was a crushing blow to progressives who had hoped to stop Mitch McConnell's freight train barreling through the Senate. Is there anything Senate Democrats can do to stop it, or at least slow it down? And whose interests will President Trump's nominee, whoever it turns out to be, serve? We'll discuss those questions with Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, a leading Democrat on the Judiciary Committee. And we'll talk to two law professors, former White House counsel Bob Bauer and former Justice Department official Jack Goldsmith, about their new book, Proposing Reforms for a Post-Trump Era, on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I got to say, I was surprised somewhat by uh, Romney's coming out with his statement Tuesday, basically giving a green light for uh, President Trump and Mitch McConnell to proceed in their nomination and confirmation of a new Supreme Court justice, I thought. On Friday night, when we first all started thinking about this, that Romney, having voted to remove President Trump from office during the impeachment trial, had shown enough independence at this point that he might be a break on the process. And it turns out, once again, I was wrong. Well, yeah, the Supreme Court's a different beast. I mean, you know, this is... uh this is about the future of the country. This is about, you know, one's political philosophy. Romney is a conservative. He's not a hardcore movement conservative. But at the end of the day, uh, he has a vision of the Constitution that I think is more in line with, you know, anybody that Donald Trump would put on the court than uh, anybody that Joe Biden would put on the court. So there was a half measure. He could have uh, been in favor of slowing down the process. But at the end of the day, you know, it's about whether one guy gets the pick or the other guy. And, you know, he wants a conservative justice. Right, right. So really, the question is, is there anything that can stop this before the election? I do think the calculus does change if It rolls over to after election, especially if Biden wins and the Democrats take back the Senate. Then I think you'll have I think it will be more difficult uh, for Republicans like Romney and a few others to go along with a lame duck confirmation. But, um, you know, who knows when the stakes are viewed as this large uh, by both sides it's sort of like anything goes, I suppose. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree that it becomes harder if this happens in a, in a lame duck session, particularly for those Republicans who are in um, 
you know, very, very tough races and in, in purple states or states uh, that have well, there won't, there won't be any ra- races, you know, in a lame duck session. No, the election oh, sorry. will yeah, just yeah, have yeah. been over. Right. right? Yeah, but, yeah. 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 But but it, it does it does become harder because, you know, the, the Republicans kind of lose the mandate uh, that they've been talking about. But, you know, what's been striking to me in talking to um, Democrats and progressives uh, since this story is broke is how resigned they have really sounded from the beginning. I mean, we talked to Nan Aaron uh, on the podcast. Uh, She did not sound like she was getting ready for a fight that would lead uh, Democrats to prevail or even have a chance to prevail. We will be talking to Sheldon Whitehouse, uh, the senator, Democratic senator from Rhode Island, who sits on the Judiciary Committee. It'll be interesting to see what he says about this. But for the most part, uh, I think Democrats are looking beyond this nomination, trying to figure out how they can use it for electoral purposes and thinking about uh, other fights like the presidential election itself and, and the Senate. And, you know, look, the reality is I think McConnell is going to be able to uh, do whatever he wants to because he practices a kind of raw power politics and he's got all the levers. He's, you know, he's now he's got the votes. He controls the process. He controls the timing. And, you know, Democrats are just in a position where they're going to have to just suck it up. Suck it up at least uh, until Election Day. And, uh, you know, it is still possible that uh, McConnell will rue the the day when uh, Democrats take back, if Democrats take back control of the Senate and uh, what they'll be able to do. But that's why it'll be so interesting to hear what uh, Sheldon Whitehouse has to say. He spent a lot of time on uh, Supreme Court issues. He's got a new report he wants to talk about, about the uh, financial interests that support the conservative movement to get conservative judges on the courts. And we'll be talking to him. And then we've got Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, two guys we've uh, been dealing with for many, many years who have uh, come together. One Bauer, a Democrat, the other Goldsmith, once a Republican and uh, certainly with uh, different ideological perspectives, but uh, have a I guess similar- it's not. I, yeah, I guess it's not a coincidence that as on the one hand, we cover just, you know, this constant government dysfunction and partisan warfare and the feeling that everything is, you know, the system is just breaking down, that you're also, we're also covering a report that the Democrats are putting out to try to get at the underlying problems with the machinery here and a book that these two distinguished lawyers have written about how to reform the system. So all in one podcast, all in all one problems, podcast. So all let's the problems get right- and some of the, some of the, uh, Uh, possibly some of the solutions. Yeah, all right. Let's get right to it. All right. We now have with us for a return engagement on Skullduggery, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat from Rhode Island, a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Senator, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you, Michael. It is great to be with you. So everybody is focused on what is going to happen in the Judiciary Committee with this new nominee. We're expecting any moment or any day now. It looks like with the uh, announcement today by Senator Romney that he is going to go along with confirming President Trump's pick that you just don't have the votes to stop it at this point. Correct? Correct. 
I don't see them unless something changes. The public does have a voice. And if Republican senators who are up for re-election detect that this might be a really bad vote for them, then perhaps something will change. But I think there are forces at work behind all of this who are so determined to seize this extra seat that given the choice, they'd rather lose the Senate for a Congress or two as long as they lock in a Supreme Court seat for decades. Senator, do you think that um, the vote will occur before the election? Is there enough time on the calendar between now and November 3rd for the Republicans to push this through? I think, you know, that's going to be up to Mitch McConnell. But if you look at where the Republican Party gets its money, and if you look at who's behind the court capture operation, I, I see them as having no higher priority than to get this done. And I think they're willing to move procedural heaven and earth to make it happen. And you and other Senate Democrats have a report on this. You just alluded to the court capture operation, and we're going to get into that in a minute. But just uh, sticking with the nomination here for a little bit, what do you think the political impact is going to be of a, say it's, uh, you know, Amy Coney Barrett or Judge Lagoa, both very conservative jurists, in terms of the election coming up, in terms of the Senate, in terms of the presidential, uh, what impact does this have on the election? Uh, It's hard to say, and I'm not a pundit, but it is certainly conceivable that in a lot of these swing states, uh, there will be people who take a look at the flagrant hypocrisy that is being displayed here and the desperate effort to seize this seat on the Supreme Court and find something a little untoward in that and that it affects their voting, either because it makes them angry and makes them want to really get out and make sure their vote is counted, or because it makes them think, you know, this is a little bit too much. I think I'll consider perhaps voting for the Democrat now instead of the Republican if they're in the middle. Senator, walk us through how this is going to play out over the next few weeks in the Judiciary Committee, you know, how quickly, assuming that the president announces his pick by the end of the week or the weekend, when would the hearings take place? When would the FBI, how quickly would the FBI background check take place? Uh, And is there anything that you and other Democrats can do to slow down the process? You know, we've been through this recently with Justice Kavanaugh and before that, with Justice Gorsuch. So if there were some triple secret procedural trick that we could pull, we would have been pretty negligent in not pulling it in those two earlier proceedings. The procedural matters in the committee are determined by the chairman and by vote. And the chairman is committed to making this happen and has the votes. This is, I think, Mitch McConnell's highest priority for reasons I already described. So I think they're going to do whatever they need to, including potentially saying, uh, depending on who the nominee is, hey, this is a person who went through the committee so recently that we can now give her expedited consideration. We don't need the usual background checks and the usual paper reviews and uh, all of the usual behavior. They will do. Can they get away with that? I mean, under committee rules? They have the votes. Are there not committee rules that can be amended by vote? And you expect them to do that? I think there is no higher priority for Republicans in the Senate than to seize this Supreme Court seat. And the big question is, for the benefit of whom? 
why all this very peculiar behavior? And that's the question that we haven't looked at. Everybody's intoxicated with who, what, where, and when, and nobody's asking the important question, why? And when you ask the important question, why, then you get a whole second set of who, what, where, and when that, to look at. But we stop dead at the first round and don't bother to look behind the curtain. And that's frustrating because I think that's an important part of the story. So let's talk about that. You are a co-author of a new Senate Democrat report, the Democratic Policy and Communications Committee, that kind of lays out how the right wing has used all sorts of nefarious means, including, you know, you talk about a cabal of billionaires and a secret network, you know, of dark money funded groups and shell entities yeah. that have essentially taken control of the federal judiciary yep. to push an agenda that they could not otherwise get through legislation or or yep. through the executive branch. So tell All us a little bit about true, that. And a lot of which is actually kind of in plain view, but we just haven't bothered to to focus on it. It's been a little bit frustrating. We'll have another series of reports beginning later this week that take a look at that problem of the captured court and analyze what it means for various topics that are of concern to America, like healthcare protection or environmental protection or being able to vote or having clean politics without dark money and so forth. So this is a continuing effort. And I think it's really important because I think the American people, many, have got this mental image that Democrats like liberal judges, conservatives, uh, Republicans like conservative judges, they both like to fight about it and to hell with all of you. And that's actually not what's happening. There's a very concerted effort funded with hundreds of millions of dollars that's been well documented in which innumerable front groups participate to control who gets selected to the Supreme Court, to fund political campaigns to support the nominees, and then to bring favored cases before them once they're confirmed so that a chorus of amicus curiae, friends of the court, can all come in singing the same song and try to guide them to the decision that the donors want. And all of these groups are funded by dark money. And I think a little bit of investigation would show that it's basically the same dark money donors behind the whole scheme. And that's worth, that's worth understanding. Senator, one of the candidates, one of the two candidates believed to be under consideration by the White House is Barbara Lagoa, who I understand you voted to confirm. And I presume you wouldn't have done so if you thought that she was handpicked by these wealthy donors who are trying to control the court. Why did you vote to confirm her? And um, why will you now, which I assume you will, oppose her elevation to the Supreme Court? Well, let's wait and see who the candidate actually is before we just start uh, discussing candidates. What I want to focus on is the is the process, the machinery. And when we have to engage in these, you know, dealing with a vacancy, we do that sporadically, we do that episodically, uh, we do that with a lot of emotion. But when you're up against a structured, systemic, secretive, very long-lasting planned operation, it's really hard to respond to that with just episodic emoting. And so what I really want to focus on is making sure that we take a good look at this machinery. Because I think once the American public gets a good look at it, they'll have a different point of view about what's happening at the court. And it provides new context for the 80 
five to four partisan decisions that have happened under Roberts that serve big Republican donor interests. 80 is yeah, a lot of I, cases. If you could put a little kind of meat on the bone of this machinery to awfully mix metaphors here, because when I think when a lot of people hear, you know, cabal of billionaires and, you know, uh, shell corporations and networks of secret organizations, what it, it sounds a little conspiratorial. And I, I mean, I don't mean any disrespect here, but I want to make sure that people understand what exactly you're talking about. I mean, do yeah. you have examples? So there's a, there's a pretty good Washington Post investigation that looks at an array of front groups operating around Leonard Leo, who from his position with the Federalist Society has been at the heart of the operation to make sure that big donors sign off on who gets selected as a nominee. And Trump has conceded that that exists. Uh, Don McGahn, his White House counsel, has conceded that that exists. There's really not a whole lot of doubt about it. We just haven't looked very hard at who is actually behind that, who is contributing the money, and what have they asked for in return. If you look at the Judicial Crisis Network, it funds the political ad campaigns for and against uh, judicial nominees. It takes donations from individual donors uh, up to over $17 million. So they've had two 17 plus million dollar donations, one around the Garland Gorsuch fight and one around the Kavanaugh confirmation. And recently they disclosed another $15 million donation. And it's plausible that those three donors are the same individual, which means that- somebody, I was gonna say, do we know who they are? No, we should know. We should know who they are. We should know what business they have before the court. And we should know what their role was in helping to select judges. If you have $50 million that you're willing to spend to go to bat for judges, you're likely to try to leverage that into the process to say, hey, if I'm going to spend 50 million bucks, you're going to have to clear your nominees with me. So, I mean, we know those things. And it means that somebody, if it's one person, contributed $50 million to influence the makeup of the court. That's a pretty serious thing to try to get to the bottom of. And those aren't speculative assertions. This is what they've reported. We just don't know the who in this case, but we know. So what what's the answer here? Legislation that would require, and I assume, as you know, there there are dark money 501c4 groups on both sides yep. of the political yep. aisle, and but, you know, progressive groups as well. Legislation. I mean, do you need a constitutional amendment to no. overturn Citizens United no. to do this, or you Not can you do it by legislation? Because nope, this is all about transparency, and the Supreme. But Court isn't that what Citizens, Citizens United, United was all was, about? No, Citizens United was all about unlimited spending, and eight to one, they said that transparency was actually a condition of allowing unlimited spending. Now yeah, but 501c4 groups are spending unlimited amounts yeah, I know. without disclosing. I know. I know. And the Supreme Court hasn't enforced its ruling, which is highly suspect. But that doesn't change what was actually said in Citizens United. And what was actually said in Citizens United by eight to one is that the only reason we're going to allow unlimited money into politics is because we have confidence that it's going to be transparent and everybody's going to know what's going on. Even Scalia was ardent in support of that proposition. So this decade of dark money we've had has been basically at the sufferance of the Supreme Court, despite their ruling that you had to have transparency in order to keep corruption uh, out of politics. So by eight to one, the Supreme Court says that's what they want to legislate on. Now there's an asterisk to that. 
which is that the big special interests on the Republican side are starting to assert a right under the Constitution to dark money. And if there's one thing I think they want out of this operation, it's a court that will go from eight to one to four to five, that they will be able to create through the court a constitutional right to uh, use dark money in politics. And that locks in the advantage of the big donors into eternity. So when you're already seeing them making that argument, that's a pretty strong signal about what they want the court to do and where the asks are going to be directed. Senator, you, you're engaging in what is likely to be a long and very difficult fight here. This is not something you're going to be able to turn around overnight. Some of your colleagues, including the minority leader, uh, Schumer, has suggested that uh, there may be an easier fix to this question of getting balance back on the Supreme Court, and that is uh, legislation to enlarge the size of the U.S. Supreme Court. Is that something that you f- you're in favor of? Not at this point. I think we've got an immediate battle on our hands, and uh, that immediate battle on our hands is to try to make sure that we resist in every way that we have within our power the Republican efforts to jam yet another controversial nominee onto the court. I expect that will be the case at this point. And to put a spotlight onto the machinery behind this operation and start to answer the question why Mitch McConnell stopped legislating in the Senate to ram through judges, why all the norms were broken in the Senate in order to ram through judges. Senator, as you conceded when we started, you don't have the votes to stop it. So given what looks like the reality that Trump is going to get this pick and McConnell's going to get it through the Senate. (laughs) We have the votes to call it out. And we have the votes to try to enlist the support of the American people. And we have an election coming up. And America is fundamentally all about the people's vote at the end of the day. And we'll just have to see if this matters to the American people. But I think it may well be a thing that tips middle of the road voters towards Democrats if the Republicans are misbehaving here. And it may be a thing that really drives up enthusiasm and turnout among Democratic voters. We have to see. But that's that's the real battlefield. But your priority battlefield with with (laughs) Senate procedural stuff. What if you win the election and win the Senate and McConnell unable to get it through before the election because the time is short, does it in a lame duck even after the voters have spoken? Would that influence your view as to whether the Supreme Court should be expanded? What that would do is to cause my Republican colleagues to forfeit any claim to procedural propriety from there on out. You cannot smash through procedural norms of the Senate while you are in power and then turn around as if you're a perfectly innocent lamb and assert the norms of the Senate when the other side is in power. So if they want to play by the rule that there are no rules other than what power allows you to do, then should we decide to play by those same rules, they have no complaint. And would you support that? I'm not going to make that decision now. That's not a decision that's upon us. How about doing away with the filibuster? Not going to decide that now either. That's not a decision that's upon us. There are lots of ways for a majority in the Senate to assert itself, including, among other things, reconciliation. So I don't want to get ahead of our skis. We've got to fight right in front of us. Let's do our best with that one, and then we'll go on from there. And none of this matters 
if we don't win the Senate. So we have to make sure we're doing this with an eye towards winning the Senate. That's the, the precondition for doing anything else. Otherwise, we just continue in the minority and continue to be rolled over and continue to have rules and norms broken by people who are entirely in search of power at the expense of principle. How do you feel right now about the Democrats' odds of taking back the Senate? And how important do you think this Supreme Court uh, battle is going to be to that cause? Coin toss. I mean, we are definitely in the hunt. It is definitely very possible for us to do it. It's probably right around 50-50. And how this plays out and how we handle it, I think, will be important uh, in that battle. Our worst case scenario would be to conduct ourselves in such a way that A, we lose and don't protect the Supreme Court seat, and B, we also cause ourselves to start losing races and diminish our chances of retaking the majority. That would be the dumbest possible strategy. So what is the right strategy here and what is the wrong strategy? I think the right strategy is to do everything we can to expose what is going on here and to make sure that we are learning from voters what it is that they need to know about this to understand it and that we're behaving in a way that gives them confidence that we will be a better custodian of the Senate and a better steward of their interests and their welfare, their well-being and their economic health than Republicans who are fixated on jamming through controversial nominees for secretive big donors. What do you make of your chairman who publicly said on two occasions in 2016 and 2018 that he would not countenance a uh, nominee during the last year of the election, would not support taking that up and then completely reversing himself now as chairman? So if you are a canny and experienced politician, as my chairman is, you obviously know that when you've said that and then you go the exact opposite direction, you're going to take a lot of heat for pulling a 180 and for hypocrisy. So that begs the question, why? Why would he be willing to walk into that firestorm of scorn and criticism over the complete reversal of his clearly stated position? Why? And the answer, I think, has to be because there are forces at work within his party that make this something that they really cannot prevent, that they are driven to serve. And that takes me back to the original problem, that there are a small group of very big donors who are spending an enormous amount of money to try to capture the court. And it's very rewarding for them. If you're the fossil fuel industry and you stopped the clean power plan for several years and you measure that against the $600 billion annual subsidy the International Monetary Fund says the U.S. fossil fuel industry enjoys, you get five extra years of continuing to soak up a $600 billion subsidy. That makes spending what the Washington Post says is a quarter billion dollars on court capture look like the bargain of the century. So... There are huge, huge stakes here for these interests, and that's what they care about. They want to protect their dark money. They want to stay away from juries. They want regulatory agents to be less independent, and they want to consolidate power in a, the least democratic part of our system. How worried are you that the current eight-member Supreme Court, if the president's nominee doesn't get 
immediately confirmed, could well end up determining the fate of the election, given all the litigation we are expecting after Election Day. Yep. I mean, we had five to four Bush v. Gore. And I don't think anybody in the Supreme Court looks back at that as their finest hour. Scalia used to just grumble, get over it, because he couldn't defend it. And so the prospect of them going back and doing it again is a very real one. They did it once, they can do it again. Um, I think it is also very germane to the American public that this could be the court that gets rid of Roe versus Wade now, that this could be the court that wipes out Obamacare and cuts out pre-existing conditions protection. Those are things that are very ripe and live before the court right now. And ultimately, if they can produce a new constitutional doctrine that big special interests have a constitutional right to spend dark money and hide who they are through these basic like covert operations that they're running, that's a huge, huge, huge win for these forces. So you got to appreciate what's at stake here for them. And the election is one thing, healthcare is one. Th- I mean, there's a lot at stake and they're going to fight hard. And people like Lindsey Graham are going to take a look at that torrent of pressure and make their decisions. Last question. We know you got to go. It just... Uh... Uh, I'm coming back to just the procedural questions of when we when would you expect the hearing or hearings to take place on the new nominee? And just one other point, you've got members, including your chairman, including one of your Democratic colleagues uh, who are on the ballot. I was thinking of the vice presidential candidate. Are all the members going to be able to um, attend the hearings? Are these going to be Zoom hearings? Uh, Just the, the mechanics of what you're expecting over the next couple of weeks. Well, I think the mechanics, to start with that, are going to be about the same as other hearings that we have held. Uh, There was quite a good hearing in judiciary on police conduct. And some people came and attended in person. Other people attended remotely. We have the technology to make that work. And I suspect that will be how this hearing will go. The when is entirely up to Chairman Graham and Leader McConnell. Obviously, the president has to announce somebody first. And then they've got to get the papers over here. And then they've got to schedule a hearing. And I think they'll probably try to expedite things as much as possible. And one of the arguments for picking someone who's fairly newly through the committee is that we don't really need to go through the whole usual process because we've already looked at this person up close. So we're going to do a new expedited process. And I wouldn't put it past them to do that. You've got to understand that the people who back this party want this seat more than almost anything else that they can name. It is a highest priority for them, and they are not going to let it go. And, and the majority can essentially make all the rules about that. I mean, if they, if they want to bypass an FBI investigate, background investigation, can they do that? Yeah, they can do. They can do all of that if they've got the votes in the committee and if they've got the votes uh, on the floor. I mean, the nuclear option allows them to blow through rules and precedents of the Senate, and they could well do that. We really need to pay attention to focusing the public on this issue and to have this come across as an important issue in the election, because there really aren't procedural tricks that we could drag out of our back pocket that we somehow missed in the Gorsuch and Kavanaugh process. Were you surprised by Senator Romney's statement today? Um, No. Um, I think that... um, 
as I said, the pressure on these folks is really immense. This is, there is no higher priority for the big funders than, than this. And I really think there's an issue of, you know, unless you've gotten a hall pass so that everybody understands that you're okay and, you know, this is not going to affect the outcome, this is like a tribal check-in and you're going to be on the team because if you're not, this is one of those no going back moments for you. Allowing, of course, for the hall pass where Mitch says, you know, I only need 51. Politically for you, this matters. We're going to give you a pass on this one. Uh, he's very good at making sure that the number of dissenters never gets to one that affects the outcome. Well, of course, if you do win that coin toss as to who controls the Senate, you will have the votes in January. So I fully expect yep. you and we will can undo uh, a lot of damage exercise uh, what you can do with that. Uh, Senator Whitehouse, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks, on Michael. Again. Thanks, Senator. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me on. We now have with us Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, a bit of an unlikely pair. Bob is, of course, longtime Democratic lawyer, former White House counsel to uh, President Barack Obama and now a senior advisor to the Biden campaign. Jack is a longtime Republican lawyer, Harvard Law School professor who served in the Justice Department under President George W. Bush as chief of the Office of Legal Counsel, Bob and Jack. Welcome to Skullduggery. In Jack's case, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure being here. So you guys have joined together and written a book after Trump, which we want to talk about and find out a little about how you came together to do this. But, of course, the big news of the season now is this uh, looming Supreme Court battle that is shaping up with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Bob, since you're a senior advisor to the Biden campaign. I want to get your sense of what the message is from the Biden campaign as to how Democrats should approach this Supreme Court fight. I'm going to disappoint you, Michael, not for the first time in our history, but I'm not here as a spokesperson for the Biden campaign on that issue. So I really don't have anything to add. I'm here to talk about the book, which I'm glad to do, or any institutional issues around the Supreme Court. But I'm actually here more in my capacity as an NYU law professor on leave who wrote this book with Jack. Well, let me let me ask one quick follow-up. This will be an institutional question about the Supreme Court. And, and you don't have to speak for the Biden campaign, but I am interested in your view, because there are a lot of Democrats who are talking about assuming now that the Senate will confirm a uh, Supreme Court nominee in the next few weeks, either before or after the election, but certainly before there's a new president, talking about, for lack of a better word, retaliation. And one of those things that they've talked about is expanding the size of the Supreme Court, adding justices to it as an institutional matter, since your book is about reforming the government. Is that something that you think is a good idea? And Jack, love to get your perspective on that as well. Well, speaking again only for myself and harking, harkening back to some things I've written about the court, including in favor years ago, in favor of term limits, it does seem to me that we have been, unfortunately, on this downhill course uh, for some time. 
And obviously, those who are concerned about what happened first in the Garland nomination and now with the nomination to be pending in the wake of Justice Ginsburg's passing, there is going to be a view that the court packing has already taken place. It's being taken place as a result of an abusive institutional process uh, by the Republicans. So you can imagine that there are Democrats, and some of them have already spoken out on this, who are not going to take any, uh, I think as Minority Leader Schumer put it in the other day, Democratic Leader Schumer put it the other day, not going to put any options off the table. And those could include uh, presumably a remedial measure, if you will, uh, by which a couple of justices are added to the court to offset the effects of these two highly, highly controversial nominations. It's hard to tell what's going to happen. One thing that's very clear is, as I said, we have been headed into this troubling territory for some period of time. Uh, It's obviously been evident from these bloody battles over the Supreme Court confirmation process. And now we see, you know, we really are at, if you will, that turning point potentially where there is going to be um, some serious consequences for the court and for the perception of the court and trouble for how Democrats, trouble and consequences. And, and certainly there, there is going to be discussion among Democrats about what the options are for addressing it. Jack, what's it, <laughs> do you what's want to it, uh, take a crack at what's this? The and I, well, I guess the question is, look, you are a... Um, Republican institutionalist. I'm actually, I'm sorry, I'm not a Republican. Not a Republican. You're not a Republican. Did you, you were a Republican. I was a Republican. When did you become a non-Republican? About sometime in the spring or summer of 2016. Uh Uh-huh. Why? Because of the nominee, your party was about to put up for president? Basically, yes. Yes. Okay, well, still that very, still aside, very conservative um, that matters. Uh, okay, all right. As a conservative institutionalist, how do you a feel about Mitch McConnell's decision to uh, try to rush through a nominee before the election, and uh, number two about what the uh, Democrats might do to retaliate if they get control of the Senate in January? I mean, I assume that they will do what they've been threatening to do even before this happened, which is, as Bob suggested, either strip jurisdiction or add uh, seats to the court. And that's their constitutional prerogative to do so, just like it's the constitutional prerogative for the Republicans to do what they're going to do. The court stuff has been a downward spiraling tit for tat going back at least of norm breaking and power hard power exercises going back at least to the Bork nomination. Both sides see it very differently and in one-sided ways, in my opinion. And I guess the only other comment I have is that it says there's something very wrong with our country when the Supreme Court is this important. It suggests that the center of decision making on important issues has shifted too far in the favor of a non-democratic institution. And as I think Ross Duthat suggested in his column the other day, I'm not sure this is quite the way to read it, but one happy consequence of all this may be to either make the court itself more sober or and less ambitious. So I'll just leave it at that. I want to ask you both about the book, why you decided to do this book. And I want to start with the title, which is After Trump, which suggests that the reforms that are needed were because of things that have happened over the last four years. But I, I gather from your the comments that you're making about the Supreme Court, things spiraling down, going back to Bork, that you're not just talking about problems with our government that are relatively recent. You're talking about problems that go way back. How do you separate the things that Trump is responsible for in these last few years and 
you know, the problems that, that go much further back. So we actually use the tit for tat on the court stuff as an example of norms diminishing over a longer period, even before Trump came into office. And the answer to your question is, you know, on, as we say in the, in the first chapter and throughout, we think that Trump has made all of the problems that we discuss in this book more salient. Some of them are almost uniquely attributable attributable to him. Some are longer term trends about irrigation of presidential power or problems in separation of powers. It's hard to generalize. I mean, we have 14 chapters and for each chapter we go through and lay out what the history was before Trump, what Trump added, and then what reforms we think are appropriate. In general, Trump is the event that has, in our judgment, required that suggests the nation should reconsider kind of across the board in a 1970s style fashion how to think about re-regulating the presidency. But some of these problems long, long predate him. Bob, uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. But first, how did this book come about? How did you guys from across the ideological divide come together to do this? We uh, met uh, in the course of uh, my work at NYU on the faculty there. I met uh, Jack. We invited him, in fact, to a class that I taught on presidential power with another member of the faculty, Rick Peldis. We were at a small sort of closed door discussion of executive authority, also hosted at NYU. We wound up having a number of conversations and actually originally concluded that we would try to write a book together about the White House counsel. And then in the course of a long day's discussion about that, we came to the conclusion that there were, and that was one of them, so many significant unaddressed institutional issues or inadequately addressed institutional issues involving the presidency that we should widen our focus considerably, which is what brought us uh, to the book and the wide range of topics we cover in it. You know, you have some very detailed proposals. You diagnose the problems brilliantly, and then you have a lot of very kind of detailed prescriptive reform ideas. I guess it's a two-part question. One is, who exactly is the audience for this book? And two, in this um, crazy culture, political media culture that we're living in right now, what gives you any hope that the kinds of reforms uh, that you propose can actually happen over time? And, and what would be the pathway to actually getting these, these reforms put into practice? It seems that we, uh, on a number of issues, we've reached sort of a tipping point. I mean, one of the after effects or aftershocks of the Trump presidency is to bring to light longstanding weaknesses and inadequacies in the controls of the presidency. I should add, and I know Jack will want to address this, that we favor a strong presidency, an energetic presidency, but one that operates within appropriate constitutional strengths and legal limits. And so we try to preserve the notion of the energetic, strong executive, but again, accountable under the Constitution. And there are, on some issues, I think after Trump leaves office, the basis for bipartisan agreement uh, that uh, there are some controls that need to be imposed, uh, norms that need to be reinvigorated. As long as Trump is in office, uh, I think we write this in the book. We do write it in the book. We don't think there's any prospect of reform. Once he does leave office, if you look back at some of the positions that Democrats and Republicans alike have taken on some of these reform issues, there is a basis for an agreement that the presidency, while it should be a strong institution, should not be an institution that is continuously slipping outside of constitutional boundaries and operating in a fashion that we think 
uh, is sort of destructive of a critical constitutional balance. And I'll, I'll stop there and let Jack address it. Yeah, I'll just say several things in response. First, about half of our reforms are reforms that we suggest take place within the executive branch, and about half roughly require Congress uh, to get involved. And as Bob said, uh, it, and you know, we have 50 or 60 proposals in the book, and some are we're more hopeful about and some are harder. Um, issues like conflicts of interest and tax disclosure, we think that there should be, uh, if there's a Democrat Congress, Democratic Congress and Democratic president, should be pretty easy to see the pathway to reform. Also, perhaps on some of the suggestions about pardons. Others on the, on the statutory side, war powers changes, maybe vacancies reform, that's harder. We should say that we, you know, we've had interest uh, in various aspects of our proposals from both sides of the aisle, and we've been talking to Congress on, on these issues. But again, the other half of the reforms are reforms that are aimed at the executive branch, at executive branch internal reform, changing rules, trying to change norms, trying to pattern behavior in certain ways. And that basically depends upon the character and commitments of the president and uh, the attorney general. As for the audience, um, we tried to write this book in a way that was in part detailed enough to address Washington insiders, uh, people on the Hill, people in the executive branch, journalists who cover these things about exactly how the reform should go, because often the devil's in the details. But most of the book is written in what we hope is a relatively accessible form for laying out the back. There's a long background for each one, a long historical background for each one of these reforms these things didn't pop out of nowhere, and we tried to uh, explain that history, put all of these things in context, and to put Trump in context for what we hope would be more would be of interest to a general reader. You know, one of the things that Bob said made me. You know, he talked about uh, not being able to do this while Trump is in office, but it made me wonder whether there actually is a unique opportunity to address some of these reforms once he leaves, because the country can maybe collectively take a deep breath after all of the kind of norms busting that, that has been going on. The, the other way to look at that is that the Republican Party has become the party of Trump and that Trumpism doesn't go away. This is a political question uh, for the two of you, but uh, which one do you think it is? I'll take a first crack at it. We don't know, obviously. And again, I really want to underscore something I just said. There are 60 or so reforms in this book, and a lot of them, some of them Republicans should be, when Trump has gone from office and it's not about, even if the party remains dominated by, by Trumpism, whatever that means, the president in power will be a Democrat and will be talking about constraints on the president. And so a lot of, there's a slice of the Republican party that's naturally interested in that issue and has always been interested in that issue. And there's a possibility if we have a reform-minded president who is interested in constraining or, or guiding his powers and authorities and constraints, that there's room for enough um, Republicans to get on board. Not, not even sure you need them, but it's gonna, the situation is going to look entirely different when um, the Republicans' president's you know, not under the microscope. And in fact, I'll just say one more thing and let Bob follow up. We tried to write the book in thinking about these reforms, every single one of them and, and how they should be crafted. We tried to write the book, and this is impossible to do, perhaps it was our goal, from the perspective of, we, I think we called it the golden rule in the book, would the restraints that we're proposing be a restraint that we would accept for our, for our preferred president? 
And would the discretion that we think is appropriate for the president or the attorney general be one that we're willing to accept for our non-preferred attorney general and president? And that's a very useful exercise. I mean, it tries to abstract away from the politics. It's hard to do. And obviously, these reforms are going to be discussed in the context of politics. But that's what we set out to do. There's a lot of proposals in this. I want to get your if you had to pick out the three most pressing ones that should be addressed first. I'd like to get each of your perspectives on what they should be. Bob, you go first. I think I would rate, first of all, I mean, I pause there for a second because there are any number of issues that are pressing. So ranking them precisely is a bit of a challenge, but I would certainly view uh, the restoration of the independence and the reputation for independence of the Department of Justice in the sphere of law enforcement as absolutely critical. And that involves both addressing internal issues within the Department of Justice, as well as clarifying what sort of relationship is appropriate between the White House and the Department of Justice. And we have a series of reforms, I think, that are addressed uh, to that. How would you do that, Bob? How would you restore the independence of the, of the Justice Department when, at the end of the day, the president has the constitutional authority over the Justice Department? We approach this from a variety of perspectives. And I know uh, Jack, uh, who has been in the Department of Justice, has some unique perspectives to offer, and they very much inform the approach that we took in the book. So I'm going to yield to him momentarily. But what we attempt to do is through a combination of statutory and internal regulatory reform, we attempt to deal with that issue. So it's a multi-pronged, if you will, attack on the issue, not a silver bullet approach, which would be very difficult given precisely the point that you're making. At the end of the day, uh, the attorney general reports to the president of the United States and the president of the United States, maybe not to the degree that Donald Trump claims for it, the president of the United States does have the Department of Justice at his or her command in the same way that he or she does with any other uh, department or agency. However, there are things that can be done. We do uh, have uh, some uh, proposals for a number of proposals for putting limits around the effect of partisan politics on departmental decision making, uh, some through internal regulation, some through statutory reform. We believe, for example, that there are individuals and senior positions in campaigns or political parties who should not be qualified simply as a threshold matter for nomination for confirmation as Attorney General of the United States. In addition to that, uh, we try to clarify that the obstruction of, statu- uh, obstruction of justice statute in specified circumstances do apply to the President of the United States and that he can be liable for obstruction of justice. Uh, we argue that uh, the belief that the pardon power is untrammeled, uh, that is you know, c- completely without limitation, is mistaken. And there are statutory reforms that we propose to prevent the President of the United States from using the pardon power to obstruct justice and also rule out self-pardons. We propose thoroughgoing reform of the special counsel regulations to provide independence in those cases where wrongdoing is alleged against the president and senior agency officials. So in a number of these respects, then, uh, we try to attack the problem. It's, It's a problem that does, I think, need to be solved through a package of reforms. Can I ask you, and maybe I'll get Jack to answer this, but you mentioned uh, reforming the special counsel law. This has been something that, you know, uh, administrations and lawyers and policymakers have been struggling with for a very long time. So do you kind of find some 
rebalancing between uh, the statutory independent counsel and, say, the regulatory special counsel that Bob Mueller was appointed under? And if so, what is that? The answer is sort of. And before I answer that, I'd like to follow up on the prior question, then I'll give this a full answer. Michael's right that the essential challenge here is that the president is vested with the executive power. I think Michael said this. The president is executive is vested with the executive power, all of it. And he delegates that. And by statute, it's delegated to the attorney general. And so that is at the core of the challenge here. But we have to remember the virtues of that arrangement. The virtues of that arrangement is that law enforcement is accountable. And the virtue of that arrangement also, paradoxically perhaps, is that appropriate political factors can inform law enforcement. And anyone who studied this problem in depth understands that the wishes of the democratically elected president, it's entirely legitimate for them to be filtered through the Justice Department in terms at least of its enforcement priorities and sometimes even in individual cases. So given that, it's always been a challenge uh, to ensure basically two things. One, that law enforcement itself is not excessively politicized in, as opposed to being informed by political factors, and that's a hard distinction, and we spent a long time trying to discuss it, i.e., you shouldn't be going after your political opponents. You shouldn't be enforcing the law in a way that aims to enhance your chances or hurt your opponent's chances in an election and the like. And we have some reforms to that, some of which Bob suggested. The other great challenge, of course, and this gets us to the special counsel statute, is that uh, sometimes senior executive branch officials will be engaged in criminal wrongdoing or, or alleged criminal wrongdoing, and there needs to be for the country a credible way of examining that. And the challenge has always been to establish an institution that is independent enough to be credible in that investigation while at the same time maintaining the accountability that basically the Constitution requires for, the, for law enforcement. So with that background, there have been efforts, that this, 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 independent, this idea of a semi-detached person in the Justice Department to investigate alleged wrongdoing in the executive branch goes back to the 19th century. But of course, the big signposts are the special counsel statute after Watergate, independent counsel statute after Watergate, which in the 1970s, there was huge bipartisan support for, and by the late 1990s, as you two know well, there was huge bipartisan support against. And it was repealed and replaced with regulations that were the regulations that operated under Robert Mueller. And that was actually the first, Mueller's special counsel investigation was the first extensive use of those regulations. So we actually learned a lot about how they worked. Okay, finally, to answer your question, what do we propose? I think in some sense, it is a clarification of the special counsel regulations and trying to clarify some things. And in another sense, it is a rejection of and a throwback to the 1970 statute. And let me explain. First of all, we embrace, and I think we think this is important, we embrace what we call the accountability function for the special counsel, i.e. the special counsel is not just, not only supposed to look for criminal wrongdoing, if there's an allegation of wrongdoing, we think that we should embrace the idea because it's always been the case, in fact, that the special counsel is also there to gather facts of alleged wrongdoing and make them public so that there can be public accountability through whatever mechanism ranging from political pushback to even impeachment or whatever else. And we take a lot of steps to protect that function and ensure that the attorney general, if he or she interrupts that function, that it, there has to be notice to Congress and the like. 
Second, uh, and that's a change from the regulations. The regulations in response to the 70s statute tried to eliminate that function. It got rid of the reporting requirement to Congress. It gave the attorney general lots of discretion on what to disclose. So in that sense, we, we try to protect the special counsel and enhance his authorities so he can find out what happened. We also bite the bullet and do what the special counsel regulations did but didn't do well enough and say the attorney general controls legal issues. It has to be the case in our view that the attorney general remains in charge of the legal interpretation for the government, even as the special counsel is running the investigation and finding the facts. And we take steps to ensure that that happens and to clarify the lines of authority between the special counsel and the attorney general that were badly muddled during the Mueller investigation. And then the third thing- but That means, I'm um, sorry, oh, sorry, Jack, that uh, means that the attorney general under this scenario, uh, under your proposal, would be able to cir- circumscribe the investigation at any point. That's that's always been the case. Uh, the question has is that's been the case since the 70s, one way or another. The question is, uh, or certainly under the regulations, that's the case. And so, yes, we think that the attorney general should be able to, if the, the attorney general defines the investigation, that's always been the case, at least since the 1990s regulations, the attorney general decides whether to expand the jurisdiction if the special counsel requests it. The attorney general maintains ultimately the decision whether to prosecute or not, which was also a feature of the special counsel regulations. And the attorney general maintains legal control. But a huge, but we think that's important. And there's a reason why the 1990s reformers in the Clinton administration thought that was important. But one thing we think, but there's a danger in giving that attorney, the attorney general that authority. And so we try to deal with that problem by ensuring that every one of those decisions I just mentioned, if it goes against what the special counsel wanted, it has to be disclosed. It has to be disclosed to Congress immediately. So that way, these internal differences can be aired. And even though the attorney general is in charge, the public will know what's going on and can assess the accountable actor, the attorney general. So I asked for the three most pressing reforms you guys uh, are proposing, and I got one, which is independence of the Justice Department. Um, <laughs> let's well, hear but, but, two but Michael, others. Um, say, well, let me just say I'll answer that. But yeah, the, we, we, I, I guess we do think that's the most important. It's also the hardest. We have a whole part on it, five chapters coming at the problem from different directions. And it seems to us to be foundational. It, it's a very hard problem, and that probably is at the top of the list. I will just say, Bob can weigh in differently. I mean, pressing for what end? If pressing for sort of returning the integrity of the executive branch, we think that there's some relatively low-hanging fruit that's pressing. And one of the things that Trump did was to, more than any other president in American history, one of the many things he did, more than any other things in America, any other president in American history, is to mingle his private business and personal interests with his public office. And so we think that ensuring that the conflict of interest rules are not a norm, but are embodied in law and enforceable, and that the tax disclosure rules are embodied in law and enforceable. And also I would say that the pardon power is circumscribed in terms of some of its more extreme abuses. I would put those at the top of the list of things that I think are important for returning the, you know, the, the integrity of the office. The truth is, all of these things are important, every single one of them, especially the reforms in parts one and two are important. The ones in part three are harder and kind of different, but those are the three I would say. Bob? I agree with all of that. 
we also, I just want to mention because, you know, it's acquiring a certain urgency given the activities of the last two presidential election cycles and the changes in the structure of our politics, and you could say also in global politics, a chapter on what we need to do to protect against uh, foreign state influence over the American political process. And we attempt to review the history because there is a history to it. It obviously has become a good bit of the story of the Trump administration, both in the last election and this one. And we anticipate that there's going to be in future administrations and future presidential candidacies, at least, uh, the potential for the question arise again, either because a presidential candidate is willing to accept foreign political assistance or because foreign political assistance is offered or actively seeks it, both willing to accept it and actively seeks it. And so what we try to do is uh, offer uh, some suggestions that current law clearly does not capture. As you know, Robert Mueller was stymied on this question. And in his report, he really couldn't do anything uh, with the Trump Tower meeting as extraordinary as it was in any number of respects. And so he sort of passed on it, having both you know, legal and constitutional concerns. And we tried to set over a package of reform, set out a package of reforms that would enable this problem to be addressed more effectively in the future. What are they? What what would you do on the issue of foreign foreign influence in elections specifically? We have three specific proposals, but I want to put an emphasis on two of them. I mean, the third one I regard, um, and you've heard about it before, we don't think it's a bad idea, and that is to amend the federal campaign finance laws to be sure to capture strategically valuable information that passes from a foreign power to an American presidential campaign, but that might be not easily assigned a market value and therefore somehow seems to fall outside the prohibitions of federal campaign finance laws. There's a way to fix that so you can bring that transaction back within the federal campaign finance laws. More, I think, impactfully, though I think this third proposal is helpful, is one, a proposal to assure that presidential candidates campaigns and presidential candidates are compelled to report contacts with foreign nationals that are contacts intended to bring the foreign national into a, a strategic political alliance to influence an election with an American presidential candidate. And there has been legislation proposed uh, to this effect by Senator Warner, uh, the ranking Democrat on the Intelligence Committee. Uh, we suggest uh, our view of how that reform ought to be structured, but there ought to be a reporting requirement. So the campaigns that are contacted have a legal obligation to notify uh, law enforcement in the United so States. So let me let me just stop you right there, Bob. If this were to be adopted, that would have required the Clinton campaign to disclose the role of the British former British spy who your law firm had hired during the 2016 election. Correct. Well. Let me clarify a couple of things. First of all, I think we discussed this in the chapter. Every one of these proposals has to be calibrated to address constitutional concerns. In fact, even today, the federal prohibition on foreign national spending is subject to any number of exceptions that are designed to capture situations that are clearly not within the zone of danger. So without speaking to the reference that you made to my former law firm and the Clinton campaign, without getting into the specifics of that, and that, as you know, was not a period of time during which I was representing a presidential campaign. I want to make it clear that we believe there are going to have to be arrangements, and I, I'm 
reluctant to address too specifically a particular case, but I guess I will. And there's even a Federal Election Commission advisory opinion longstanding having nothing to do with 2016 that goes to the point that purchasing services from a foreign supplier of services is not what's at issue here. What's at issue here is a foreign power entering into a strategic political alliance. If you, for example, you know, purchase, and there is this comes very close to an old opinion the FEC issued some years ago, uh, if you go ahead and you acquire sort of campaign materials of some kind that you're going to use from a supplier of those materials in Canada, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something much closer to either Richard Nixon's attempt, in fact, successful attempt, to negotiate the, with the South Vietnamese government that it would block peace negotiations in 1968 to help Nixon beat Hubert Humphrey in that election, or the Trump Tower meeting in which a campaign senior staff assembles to receive a delegation from the Kremlin, uh, bringing explicitly by you know, prior advertisement and emails so-called opposition research about the candidate's opponent to America to, in effect, offer this as an indication further of the foreign government's desire to see Donald Trump elected. In the Nixon, Nixon case, in the Trump case, in cases like that, that's what you're trying to address. And that's what brought Robert Mueller up short. He investigated it, but he couldn't find a legal framework within which to deal with that kind of strategic political alliance. But it doesn't capture any foreign national involvement at a level that wouldn't raise those concerns. I mean, today there are foreign nationals who you know, donate their, they, they volunteer their services to political campaigns. Isn't that something of value that would be prohibited under federal election law? Not, not if it's personal services that a foreign national offers, like an individual who comes, I'll give you an example, a foreign born entertainer who offers to donate their talent at a fundraising concert, so long as all the associated expenses are paid for by the campaign. But that's very different. Wait a second, that's something of here. value that a foreign national is providing to an election campaign. Why isn't that forbidden under federal election law? Well, I, I'm describing to you the law and the way in which, and this is true even of the regulation of transactions between domestic USA actors, purely American citizens, if you will, the law continually balances the overall objectives of the statute to prevent the corruption of the political process with exceptions that are designed to protect activities that either raise constitutional questions or that simply don't present the same kind of harm. The entire campaign finance law is a balancing exercise in the reporting requirements and the contribution limitations that are subject to exceptions. There's always those choices that have to be made. And we indicate in our chapter how something like Trump Tower could be addressed by amending an existing statute that currently prohibits a public official from acting uh, as the agent of a foreign principal in circumstances in which normally that public official would have to register as a foreign agent under the Foreign Agents Registration Act. And we suggest amending that statute that already exists to make it clear that it applies to that kind of agency relationship with a foreign power seeking to influence an election through a strategic political alliance. And I think that can be done. And I think we set out uh, in the book, Jack and I, how that might be done. One of you, I can't remember which one, but one of you mentioned that uh, you originally set out to write a book about the White House Counsel's Office. And I'm curious what that book was going to be and how it became a springboard for this much broader review of institutional reform within the government. Jack? Sure. 
So Bob and I met 18 months ago at a conference room in Harvard Law School, and we had planned a day to map out this book about the White House Counsel's Office. And that book had grown out of the, – the aim to do that book had grown out of discussions that we had had. We actually had an intellectual exchange uh, – I mean a written exchange and some law reviews on the proper role of the White House – of the executive branch lawyer – and we had some differences there, but we had a lot in common when we had an interesting time talking about that. And in thinking about what projects we might do together, we realized that the White House Counsel's Office where Bob served and that I used to work with every day in the Bush administration is just a hugely consequential office. There's no great book on it. Uh, there's no great book on the history. There's no great book on its operation. It's hugely important, very consequential. So we set out in January of last year, I guess it was, to write that book and outline it. And we kept changing the topic to talk about all the other issues that uh, were raised by the Trump presidency. And we also thought it would be, might be a good idea to have people who had some different political commitments, but a lot of executive branch experience and kind of an open-minded approach to these problems to try to see how much progress we could make on those issues and what should be done about them. And so by the end of the day, we had basically decided to write this broader book, one chapter of which ended up being about the White House Council and a pretty dramatic reform of the White House Council. But the book took on a much broader. Yeah, and tell us about that. I, I thought that was fascinating. Tell us about the reforms you proposed the White House Council's office. Bob will take that. Yes, that was a I, Jack and I had lengthy conversations that ultimately resulted in our arriving at a conclusion that maybe a few years ago I would not have guessed that I would arrived at. I'm always quick to say that having been White House counsel was the best job I ever had. However, I have always noted that it is a controversial office, uh, almost not quite from its inception, but pretty much from its inception. And uh, one of the concerns, and sometimes these concerns are vastly overstated, is that it results in politicized legal advice. It results in legal advice that is simply tailored too much uh, to the political imperatives that are expressed within the West Wing, where the White House counsel always also resides. The suite of the White House counsel's offices, one floor above uh, the first floor where the Oval Office is located. The White House counsel is a senior aide to the president, as are the White House counsel's deputies. And then there's a fairly large number, amounting to a small law firm of lawyers who were housed in the uh, building next door, in the Eisenhower building, I, I guess once called the old executive office building. And one concern has been, well, this just means that the White House counsel winds up being an enabler, a hack. That's not true, and that's not what the history of the White House counsel supports. But that history also supports the view that depending on who the president is and depending on who the president selects as White House counsel, that relationship can become very dangerously close, and it can skew both the reality and the perception of the quality of the legal advice uh, and the impartiality of the legal advice that the president receives. So our, I came to the conclusion that I'm not saying reluctantly, but maybe surprisingly, after Jack and I discussed it, we both came to agree on this, that the White House counsel's office ought to be downsized. And the White House counsel ought to be there because the president does require having a lawyer at hand in the normal course right there in the West Wing with maybe two or three deputies to enable the White House counsel to function effectively. But that the rest of the body of the White House counsel's core, the lawyers who are the most responsible for getting legal advice in a timely fashion to the executive office of the president, ought to be moved over to the Department of Justice. And they ought to be housed with the Office of Legal Counsel. And the objective there is to assure that they simply operate in a different culture. Uh, they walk the halls of the Department of Justice. They are among career department lawyers. 
they're not day by day, elbow to elbow with the White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Political Affairs or the White House Press Secretary. Uh, it's just a different environment. And I think the White House Council is uh, well served by that because the White House Council will continue to be critical to representing the president on congressional oversight and issues that require mixed political communications judgment, management, if you will, of quote unquote scandal. But the core legal analysis, legal support uh, that the White House counsel requires is best done on Constitution Avenue by lawyers who identify with the Department of Justice. And I think over time, that would work a salutary change in the culture. As we uh, wrap this discussion up, it occurs to me that uh, at least uh, some of the reforms, particularly on the um, independence of the Justice Department, would inevitably be subject to a Supreme Court challenge uh, and ultimate resolution. So I want to come back to the issue we started this whole discussion with, and that's the Supreme Court vacancy uh, and a looming fight. And I've got two questions, <laughs> one question for each of you. Bob, you were White House counsel between 2009 and 2011. If you had served a bit longer and a vacancy came up during an, the, uh, the fall of a presidential election year, would you have advised President Obama not to nominate a candidate because it would get conservatives and Republicans too upset? I don't know that that would be the reason that I would advise against, would have advised against it. It's impossible for me to say what I would have advised under unknowable historical circumstances. I do believe, and I think this is true, that every White House counsel who gave advice would give advice on the options and the risks associated with each option, as opposed to coming storming out of the gate telling the president what he or she should do. And I think that any White House counsel worth the name would have pointed out to the president uh, that, yes, they're going to come under tremendous pressure from wings of their party uh, to do what uh, President Trump has done in these circumstances. But there are consequences. Uh, there are consequences. There are norms that are at risk. And that every president, and I think this is really true, when I observed it at close hand, every president has an obligation. I don't think this current president feels it at all. An obligation to think, even when under these kinds of political pressures, to think about long-term institutional issues and to leave the presidency and the process in a better place, or at least as good a place, if that's possible, as when that president entered office. And there is no question that any advice to the president at the time would have been, this is a momentous step that is going to result in an unpredictable but very rapid spiral downward, and it will cost a lot. It will cost the credibility of the court significantly, it will result in calls for what is called, you know, periodically referred to as, quote, court packing, close quote, and it will have your name attached to it. And uh, the consequences ultimately may be ones that include the wiping out of any gain that you imagine you'll achieve with this appointment, but the gain having been wiped out, the cost won't be wiped out. The cost will be long-lasting and they will be severe. Now, I'm not saying there aren't other arguments the other way that will come into that discussion with the president. I, I imagine they would. But any White House counsel, if you're asking me that question, would have certainly laid that out for the president. Jack, last question to you, which was really my first question to you, which you didn't answer, and that is, what is your view of President Trump's decision to rush through a nominee in the closing weeks of this election and Mitch McConnell's decision uh, announcement that he is going to rush through the confirmation? What's your view of that? 
I mean, I, I did answer it and I'll, and I'll say what I said again. This is the latest step in hard power, hard exercises of hard power by people in the confirmation process. Both That's sides. That's an explanation. It's not. It's not. It doesn't lead. tell us what your view is. I, I, I'm giving you my view. I'm giving. <laughs> I'm giving you my view. I'm giving you my view. It, it's. It goes back to the Bork uh, confirmation hearings. I believe it was Bob's. One of Bob's successors said, and I'm, I don't want to. Uh, I'm gonna have to paraphrase either that she would have advised. Or that, yeah, I think she said she would have advised President Obama. I can't quote me on this, <laughs> okay. but paraphrase. She would have advised okay, President, Professor. She would, have advised President o, she would have advised the course that McConnell took if, she, if they were in power. And it's not, so all I can say is, are you asking me, do I like it or not? Is that what you want to know? Are you asking me, do I think it's constitutional? Yes, it's constitutional. Is it surprising? No, it's not surprising. Is it going to be difficult for the country? Yes, it's going to be difficult for the country. Is it going to result in court packing and jurisdiction stripping? Perhaps. Beyond that, like, I don't but know. But do you like it? <laughs> Answer your own question. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't, I don't really have a okay. view. I mean, I actually, I like, I like conservative jurists. Okay. Yes. I've got one last question for Bob, a legal question, which is maybe now seems hypothetical, but may not be a few weeks from now, and you may be involved in it. And this also goes to the Supreme Court. If it is a very closely contested election, if there is litigation, if it goes to the Supreme Court, if the Supreme Court uh, has eight justices, not nine, what happens if the court is divided 4-4? Does it, it- Well, it, it depends on what happens, what comes up to the court when it's 4-4. So it's very hard to argue in the abstract. Uh, but I, I understand what you're driving at, which is we can now add a 4-4 court uh, to the endless recitation of nightmare scenarios in the rest <laughs> exactly. of this election. Uh, and it doesn't seem like there's any end to the potential nightmare scenarios. However, I will tell you this, I'm, I, and I'm speaking just for myself, although, as you know, I, I have some responsibilities for the Biden campaign in this area. There is no reason, given the experience of the last several years, not to think about contingencies, including some of the darker ones. I think some of what you hear in the public space on this subject is a little bit a little bit fantastic. And for a while, for example, people were really wondering what well, could literally Donald Trump by emergency decree alter the date of the election. I think we have to separate some of the fact from the fiction here, uh, in particular because I'm concerned that voters are going to be completely bewildered and wonder whether there's an electoral process that they really ought to bother participating in. I think the election will come off. I think it will come off successfully. I have a pretty good idea, I think, who, I will, win, who will win, but I'm not going to get into that here. But I think you can imagine what my answer is. But I think that it will, it will be brought off. I think one thing people do not recognize is that across the country, there is just an extraordinary amount of work being done by conscientious election officials working with civil society and other organizations to put this election on a secure footing that will enable, enable voters to participate and will enable the public to have confidence in the results. So I'm, I, what I'm always worried about is elevating the rhetorical excesses of Donald Trump. He wants us to believe the election will be chaotic. He wants us to believe there will be rampant fraud. He will wants us to believe that it will be illegitimate unless he wins. Same reason why he thinks that the mail program in Florida is a good mail program, but not anywhere else in the country. Uh, so his reasoning, obviously, as usual, is unbelievably opportunistic. But I would just enter that cautionary note on nightmare scenario plan. Well, I, I think that is a, a, a very good corrective and a good way to end this uh uh, this podcast on a slightly more upbeat and less nightmarish note. So we thank you for that. 
And we thank both uh, you, uh, Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, uh, for joining Skullduggery. And uh, good luck with the book. Hope at least some of those proposals get put into uh, practice at some point and, uh, and hope you will uh, both come back uh, and join us on, on Skullduggery again. Well, thanks to both. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank Thank you. you.